Remain standing for the reading of the text this morning from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. Now hear the word of the Lord, the fifth of six times that Jesus is illustrating an inappropriate interpretation of the law of God, clarifying what it has been from the beginning. And so this refrain, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, marks the fifth of those six occasions, and now we hear together his illustration. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to this text, which is been so misunderstood and misapplied, and we confess that even we do not have the ability to understand it apart from your spirit, for these things are spiritually appraised. We do ask that you would clear our mind and our lives from all of our previous baggage, from all of our interpretations of the past, from any of the preconditions and presuppositions that we might come fresh to it this day, led by your Spirit, and that you would give your Spirit to guide us in this truth, for thy word is truth, and that you would sanctify us in this your word, washing us and cleaning us, your church, that we would be without spot or blemish or any such thing. So guide us according to the truth, mold us in the truth, Teach us the truth, that we might see the truth and live the truth, knowing that the truth sets us free. So we ask that your Spirit would guide us in this unto the glory of our risen Christ and to our Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We come now to one of the most controversial passages of the Sermon on the Mount, And when most people think of the Sermon on the Mount, this passage tends to be what most people think of. And yet these verses are probably the most misunderstood, misapplied verses in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so it is with great care that we must navigate through these waters, and we must take some time in these verses, and therefore I am going to take a couple of weeks through them. So if you see me what you think is going additionally long, I will cut short. But it's important for us to have an understanding. If you and your wife are walking downtown at night and find yourself alone on a dark street where a stranger approaches you and threatens you and attempts to take away your wife from you, And these verses flash before your mind, and you hear the words of Jesus, do not resist the evil person. You had better have a good understanding of what they mean and what your Christian response should be. But as for me, I'm going to defend my life and fight for my wife. 
If a bully approaches you and desires to take your favorite jacket, perhaps it was that letter jacket that you got on the varsity football team, And yet this boy happens to know that you're a Christian, and so he tends to capitalize on the situation and quotes this very passage from you. Ah, you're a Christian. Give me your jacket. And while you're at it, give me your favorite jersey as well. It would be helpful to know ahead of time what you should do. But if that happened to me, I'm not giving him my jacket, and I'm not going to allow the bully to steal away my jersey. Or if you're confronted by a professional beggar or borrower or drunkard, does that mean that you are obligated every time to give and lend to such? It does not. And if we wrestle this very text out of its context and literally take it that way, it will be self-defeating. As Leon Morris said in his commentary, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing in another prosperous class of adlers and thieves. So as we consider the present passage, we must do so in its context, and we also must consider the very quote from the Old Testament that the scribes and Pharisees wrestled out of its context. Taking a verse, a passage, in its present context is critically important if we are to understand the Bible properly. Sinclair Ferguson once commented on this when he recalled um, a computer program that was a translator of English into other languages. So a colleague of him suggested for him to test it out. So he puts in the English, which then translates it to Russian, and then he gets the Russian back into English to see how it came out. So he puts... The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so it gets translated into Russian and Russian back into English. And what it came back is, the whiskey is stronger than the beef. I thought that was funny. But that's exactly the kind of thing that happens when we take verses out of their context. In fact, that's how cults are started. They take a verse at face value, but take it out of its context and do not compare Scripture with Scripture And that's exactly the kind of thing that Satan deceives people with, the truth, and thinking that they are obeying it, and yet sometimes doing exactly the opposite. So let's unpack these verses to see what Jesus is saying here. He first begins with that phrase, but you have heard. Now what they have heard was... Something true. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that, that's a true statement. It is quoted from <clears throat> at least three passages. Exodus 21, verses 23 through 27, Leviticus 24 through 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. It all has that. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had wrestled that from its context so that what they heard, meaning the interpretation of that in which they believed and came to teach, was not the original intent in which it was put in the context back in those passages. When God gave the law to Moses and the people of Israel, He did so to restrict abuses and to bring equity. 
The very meaning of those verses in their original context in which they were given were designed to teach a principle of fair and just punishment for crimes committed. It was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life. It is not what the natural, unregenerate man would seek. A natural, unregenerate man would seek not equitable justice. He would seek retaliation and retribution. He would seek, and still does seek, life for a tooth. Or an eye for your fingernail, if you will. While it is just to sentence a murderer with capital punishment, it is not just to sentence a thief with such. See, that's the intent. You're restraining the very wickedness and natural tendencies of a sinful fallen people to do more than what is just for those who have perpetrated a crime. But secondly, the scribes and the Pharisees wrestled this out of its context because the law was intended for judges and and for magistrates and not for personal application and revenge. But by the time they came on the scene and the time Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, that is exactly the interpretation of how they were applying this truth. Or I should say misapplying. The laws were given to authorities over civil justice. And the quote that the scribes and the Pharisees utilized was designed for that realm. But they wrestled it from that biblical context and they twisted it in something with a far different intent. And for them, the text became a pretext for retaliation and a license for personal revenge. It wasn't merely something that was allowed, but it was expected. So they take something in a negative framework in the Old Testament and they turn it into something of a positive framework for personal living. Took what the Bible was intending to curb abuses of inequitable punishment and turned into a positive declaration for revenge and retaliation. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene, he preaches this sermon. What they had heard and believed and were teaching was that some were under obligation to act in a retaliatory manner to those who have wronged them. Now, that's what they had heard. That's what they were believing. And that is what Jesus, against which he was preaching. And what Jesus was teaching here was exactly what the law had taught from the very beginning. And it was exactly the opposite of that. So then Jesus declares what the law had always meant. Remember, he did not come to change the law. He did not come to abrogate the law. He came to fulfill it. And here he was exposing the intent and the spirit of the law, which was from the very beginning. And when I mean from the beginning, I don't mean from Moses. I mean from the garden that was imprinted upon the heart, then further clarified once again at Mount Sinai with Moses But he says in verse 39, But I say 
Do not resist an evil person. Now, it is important to understand that Jesus is dealing with something much deeper than just what is on the surface here. He is getting at the spirit. That's the hard place to obey the law of God. He is addressing not just the external, literal aspects of the application of it, but he is getting right down into the spirit of the law. And he is not saying without any qualifications that no resistance should be given to evil. That is not what he is saying. The word resist here is the word for oppose, to stand one's ground. Evil can be taken either as a masculine or a neuter adjective here, which could be interpreted either the evil man or the evil one. Both are acceptable translations. But whatever Jesus is meaning here, it cannot mean that we are not to oppose or stand one's ground against an evil man or Satan himself. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll find that that cannot be what it means. God does not contradict himself, and neither does his word. In our spiritual warfare, in Ephesians chapter 6, we are specifically told to put on the armor of God and do exactly that, resist Stand one's ground against evil. Romans 13 speaks of the civil magistrate as a minister of God in order to restrain evil. In fact, the very mission of Christ was to come not only to resist evil, but to overcome it victoriously. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit to be the salt of the earth and to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, to stand in righteousness is to stand and oppose evil. So what Jesus is saying here is not an unqualified statement, and many have gone wrong on this very point. There are many pacifists, those who do not believe that it is appropriate to bear arms or to go to war or to battle, or those who would see that they would take this verse and they would say, we should not ever oppose evil in any of those manners. There were the Anabaptists and Quakers and others who were like it that have this doctrine of pacifism that means for them never to fight for any reason. And that is not where this Bible is teaching. And the greatest battle, the greatest fight that has ever been fought was the bloodiest battle in all of the world. And that was fought and won by our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross and a subsequent resurrection. And that is why all of the psalms lead us to these battle songs where our salvation has always and none other but has come to us than through a great battle that has been fought and won for us by another. It is a bloody battle, and our Lord was willing to do it for us. So this passage is not teaching that a father should sit idly by while watching some lunatic break into his home, butchering his family. Jesus wouldn't allow that because he did not for us. That's exactly the analogy of what Jesus did for us. 
This does not mean that you can't defend innocent lives against a murderer who happens to walk into McDonald's and begins to open fire on innocent civilians. To be able to defend those innocent victims against such wrath would be a godly thing and not the opposite. See, this, so many people have turned this into a round and upside down upon its head, not realizing the context and the pretext and what really he's getting at here. What Christ is teaching here addresses the spirit of man. It goes deeper than the externality of the law. And it's against the scribes and the Pharisees' use of this Old Testament passage, of which they then took as license and even an obligation to retaliate in personal matters that Jesus now teaches against that. The whole spirit of resisting the very urge to retaliate. There's not a single person here that does not have a natural inclination to retaliate when someone does you wrong. And it's exactly that, deep down within your heart of hearts, that Jesus is addressing that with his law. See, the natural unregenerate man who has not the Spirit of God does not seek mere equity. He seeks revenge. He seeks retaliation. He seeks hurt. He seeks that beyond what might even be just. And that is what the original law was designed to curb. And here it is what Jesus is addressing in the spirit of man that seeks that very thing in all of us at a deep down level. And what Jesus is teaching here is what Paul reinforced in the 12th chapter of of Romans when he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you'll reap coals of fire upon his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's getting down into something at a deeper level. Because people have a tendency to lash back in the flesh against those who have done them wrong. Am I wrong here? Do you have a natural tendency, just when I say natural tendency, that flare up, that is impulsive and almost instinctive, When someone puts you in harm's way or does something against you or insults you in a way to immediately find this rise from within your spirit that rises up and would just recoils in your back and immediately there is an anger and a flesh that heats up that you then, if the Spirit of God does not restrain you, will say something, do something that is not what Jesus is commending here. It is that very thing that Jesus is teaching against. See, Jesus is opposing the very spirit of retaliation. He's opposing the very spirit of retribution. He's opposing the very spirit that we have in us in the old sinful man to rise up 
It is more than just what we do. It happens before what we do, down in the Spirit, that He is showing us that we have to be completely different. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot obtain the kingdom of heaven. Remember, that's part of this context. What he's saying is not just the outside man, but what goes on from the heart. That's what defiles the man. And what Jesus is saying is what the Scriptures have always maintained and what Paul later goes on to reemphasize. It's something that unbelievers simply cannot do. The unregenerate sinner, apart from the grace of God, cannot act from his heart in a gracious manner toward those who do him wrong. He might restrain some kind of external activity, but from his heart he cannot but do wrong. But that's what God expects from us. You see, what God is saying here, what Jesus is expounding here, is something quite impossible for the natural man. And it is quite impossible for you if you are not walking in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's teaching us here not to oppose evil with evil, or as from my alma mater, but long before I came on the scene, Dr. Bob Jones Sr., which we are reminded often in chapel, it is never right to do wrong in order to do right. That's a great saying. Jesus is speaking directly against the inclination in our spirit to lash out at someone who has done wrong or someone that we think has done wrong. Now, on your way to Nashville or your way to commute, I've used this illustration before, but this is a great test. Someone cuts you off intentionally because he's in a hurry and assumes you're not. He assumes he's more important where he has to go, has greater purposes. He has people to see and places to go. And he is racing down the interstate and he cuts you off. You slam on the brakes to keep from having a a big argument or a big crash. And the very next inclination in your spirit is what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. Have you ever then come out in the fast lane? You hit your gas. And you come back over and you slam your brakes. Have you ever done that? I have. It's been a long time. But I've done that. Ashamed to say. Not proud of it. But my spirit rises up pretty quick. And there's something deep down inside of my heart of hearts that I do not like. That Jesus is saying, right here, buddy, right here. This is what I'm talking about. This is now what I'm talking about when I'm clarifying the matter of the law. He's speaking against that inclination in our spirit that rises up and wants to lash out to someone who has done us wrong. And here he teaches that the very essence of the verb or the, the word long-suffering. What does it mean to be long-suffering? Oh, we can just quote through the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And we get right on to gentleness, goodness, kindness. Suffering, long. Persevere and endure with great patience. 
to those people who wrong us. That's exactly what the word means. He is desiring to teach us in our heart to not merely restrain from the externality of what a man might do or what he can do, but our heart and spirit needs to be so trained to the extent that we do not feel the inclination to defend ourselves against things like insults or when our personal rights are infringed upon or when someone wants to take advantage of us. That's where he's getting at. It's deeper than just simply giving someone the extra piece of garment. So he uses four illustrations to address this particular point that he is making. The point is one, the illustrations are four. So don't confuse the illustrations with the point. The point is this desire in our own spirit of seeking retaliation and lashing out against our fellow man when we have been wronged. Not to exact our rights, not to demand protection for this personal ego. And so the first of those <clears throat> illustrations we'll work through today, and we'll come back to this text next Lord's Day, Lord willing, and we'll work through the rest of the three. But the point is one, the illustrations are four. So four ways in which he's illustrating this point. The first of all is turning the other cheek. And so he says there in the text... But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So you have heard that it was said, and now against that misinterpretation, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, but that's not an unqualified statement. So now let me illustrate really what I'm talking about in four illustrations. First of all, turn the other cheek. Now notice here it says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek. This was a slap on the cheek, on the right cheek, by the back of someone's hand. And it was considered and still is in the East today an action that was showing the greatest possible contempt for someone and today in some places, is punishable in the courts by a very heavy fine. This backhanded slap was an insult, and it was very demeaning to a person. It was, however, not described as an all-outright assault. In fact, today, if you are backhand slapped in a particular country, you can take the person to court... And if the court decides in your favor, they will accuse and find the perpetrator guilty, not of assault, but of defamation of character. And that's what's going on here. It is a a heinous insult to your character and to your person, and a fine for such could exceed a man's entire annual wages. It is that serious of an insult. But the only recourse a man had who had ever been backhand slapped was to take the offender to court and hope that the court would award him. Now that is the illustration of the point he is making. 
It's intended to show that when we are personally insulted, that we should not feel that we have to defend ourselves, not to protect this ego. But we should grow also not to even feel the need to do so. When someone insults you, and I, I can't, I you know, don't really know what, <clears throat> in your perspective, would be the greatest insult that you would be able to uh, stand. But even the greatest display of contempt shown for you, a Christian should not then retaliate. But in fact, if he's walking in the Spirit and so full in his sanctification and growth, he should not even feel the Spirit rising up to do so. I'm not there yet. I might bite my tongue and keep my mouth shut. I might not. But I'm not there in terms of that inner. But this is the sanctification of which God says we should be growing in. And He has given us the grace to do that. And as we grow from glory to glory, we are to become more like Jesus because we see that's exactly what was going on with Jesus. Not just at His trial, but at climax there, but through all of His life. Even if you have a legal right to take your insulter to court and can be exacting upon him a very heavy fine for his wrong, you're to let it go. Let it go. You may even have legal grounds for doing so. He says, let it go. We are not to overcome evil with evil. In other words, you don't play ball on your opponent's home ground or you don't do battle on your enemy's secured turf. Now, we all know <clears throat> in sports, everyone knows that the home team has the advantage, has the hometown court advantage. And if you play ball on his home court, you know that he is automatically in the advantage. And we have seen many ball games overturned. Um, with great opponents or even weak ones because of that home team advantage. But in war, if an army is dug in on high ground, he has a certain advantage of winning the engagement. Sung Su said in his Art of War, he says, you never engage an enemy on high ground. He is most certain to win if you do. And what Jesus is saying here in effect is you don't play ball on your opponent's field and you don't go to battle on your enemy's secured turf. No, you don't do battle that way. You do battle, but you do it in a completely different way. You do engage the enemy, but not the way he engages you. He lashes out in the flesh, but you're going to have to respond in the spirit. And that is a completely different way of doing battle. That is completely different from the way we naturally inclined to think. The way you do it is not retaliating kind for kind or reacting in the way that your opponent engages you. That is a misinterpretation of eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But what he says here is you are to take it on the chin and yet you are to turn the other also. Turning the over cheek, the other cheek is the very principle of overcoming evil with good. 
The good here is this patient endurance, the long-suffering which presents the very character of Christ. In Christ, defeat of Satan was not a passive exercise. But what Jesus was doing is he engaged in the battle, deferring to the Father who afterwards exalted Christ. And the sinful flesh always wants its instant gratification or satisfaction in asserting itself, but the Christian must be content to leave matters in the hands of God, deferring that satisfaction to however God sees that He desires to bring resolution, whether it be now, whether it be in a week, or whether it be in glory. And that takes a great deal of faith in walking in the Spirit. That's exactly the opposite of what the scribes and the Pharisees believed and taught. And on a very personal basis, we are not pacifists, but we're warring by faith and in the faith against the very evil one who seeks to harm us and our families through the instruments of other unregenerate men. And we must stand firm by the power of God's might and by deferring to Christ in order for Him to win the battle. We must endure. When we are wronged, On the one front, we must defer to Christ. Christ, how do you want this situation to be handled? How will you take care of this? As you read the Psalms, you can learn from David in learning how to pray, in learning how to worship, in learning how to to declare God's glory in the midst of the most difficult circumstances of all of life. And David's arch enemy came from within the camp of the church itself. He was not afraid of that Goliath Philistine who would go out and he could face him face to face, stood way over him and here this ruddy little good-looking chap who knew not war took care of the Goliath because he was defaming the name of God. It was for God's name that he went to battle. But the worst enemy was not that Philistine. It was one who was called Saul. And how many psalms do we have when David is running from Saul and he's in the wilderness or even flees over to the Philistine camp and he goes from this great man, Saul, and he has two opportunities to take Saul's life and he does not do it because he's God's anointed and he's going to have to defer to Christ to do it his way and for God to be glorified in that. And so he must learn patient endurance. But the thing that governed him is he knew the glory of God on that anointing the one that he now bore. He's going to have to do it God's way. And when we are wronged on one front, we have to defer to Christ. When we are personally insulted, we're just going to have to defer to Christ. When the end of one conflict comes then we must prepare for the beginning of another. And this is the Christian life. Do not think that we are in the battle. In fact, we are to resist evil, but we are to do it in a different way. We are to do it spiritually and by the armor of God. We not only bear our present injuries with great endurance by faith, but we prepare for fresh injuries to follow. We will be injured. 
But how we respond is the very point that Jesus is getting at. This world in which we live that Jesus has not seen fit yet to take us out of, but which He has promised He will, is a world of a place of rage and anger and quick-tempered spirits. Rage, rage, and terrorism are the ways of this world, and we should not be surprised. But Christians should be adorned with meekness and a quietness in their spirit. Quiet and meek spirit. It is not merely a quiet and meek body. It is not merely a quiet and meek mouth. It is a quiet and meek spirit from which all of these things come from. And that gentle and quiet spirit, they're willing to take insults upon our character, defamation, verbal abuse, and even a backhanded contempt slap across our cheek without the natural rise of anger in their inner man, or at least not for very long. And that's the fruit of the Spirit. And if we could but learn to defer to Christ with any and all of the wrongs that we feel against us and let Him deal with the wrong, we would be a better place. And when we do that, something going on is very powerful. And that's overcoming evil with good. Christ's exposition of the law here is this very point. It goes back to what he began of the attitudes that blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn and happy are those who are meek. And he's bringing those very characteristics into play in the law itself. And folks, this is the character of Christ. This is that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, which he has not only imputed to you, but by now the Spirit of God is working in you from glory to glory. It is this character of Christ, this spirit of meekness, which the Bible says leads people to repentance. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, knowing, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? To overcome the world, we must be a people of goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. How do you lead people to Christ who are so hardened in the toil and the heinous aspects of this fleshy world? It is exactly this way with forbearance and goodness and gentleness and long-suffering. And that is what will turn the world upside down. It's not how you naturally think. In fact, to receive this, you can only believe it by faith. We cannot be a people who feels compelled to defend our own ego or own persons. The name of Christ, yes. Your personal ego, no. And this is part of dying to yourself and picking up your cross and following Him in the way that He went. But we, and perhaps me, as the chief of the people who have to work on this, we have to be watchful of a defensive spirit. A defensive spirit is one that wants to defend ourselves. 
We have to watch for subtle ways that we lash out or defend ourselves. I think one of the reasons that so many people have a problem, and I'm speaking about in the church, with gossip is because that is one way that they go and defend themselves. Gossip is a way that you talk evil about somebody behind their back because you somehow feel like you're in the righteous position. And gossip is the way in which, in some ways, it's a defense of ourselves and a mechanism that we find to, that we gravitate toward some circle of, of appeal, of recognition or acceptance in that particular circle against someone else. And it's a heinous crime and sin before God to do that. Social media is another subtle matter in which one defends themselves against perceived injustices. Someone's done me wrong. What do I do? I go to Facebook. Right? That's our inclination. I'll just air it out there. Jesus is saying, it's not on the outside, but it's what comes from the heart. It's the heart that feels that it must go and do so that must be addressed. And as we then turn in the next week to the other three illustrations, we must not forget the point. These are illustrations of the point that help clarify what Jesus is teaching. But may God grant us grace this week to remember that when someone does us wrong, when they insult us, when they say something injurious to us or about our character or about who we are, You must remember and let this govern you. You have to walk in the Spirit so that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the way that you walk in the Spirit is to be indoctrinated in His Word. And you must be in the Word. And you must be watchful and prayerful at all times. Not just sometimes. Not just that time in the morning. Watchful in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Be watchful because your enemy... He's like a roaring lion. He's going to seek who he may devour. He's also like an angel of light, seeking who he may deceive. And I would say be watchful, particularly this week, because God does not sanctify us in a vacuum. He's now going to give us opportunities to put this into practice. I encourage people this way so that they don't get hit unawares. But when God is going to work this principle in you, He's going to work it in such a way that He's going to put you to the test. And He's going to show you and recognize where you fail. So that then the next test, perhaps maybe you're a little more aware. You may fail again, but then the next test, okay, now I need to be about the Spirit. So much of our life is lived in dependency upon our flesh. And when we depend upon our flesh for the spiritual battles He's called us to, we will fail. And we need to be watchful and prayerful and walk in the Spirit. Walk in love. Walk in the light. See, those are the three walks that God gives us in Ephesus or in Ephesians. And only when you are walking in the Spirit and walking in the light and walking in love are you able to overcome evil with good. And you must defer to Christ. Just leave it with Him. Let Him take up your cause. Let Him seek the justice that you feel is needed. Let Him recompense. Let Him take the vengeance. Vengeance is His, but it is not yours. Do not retaliate. Let Him do what He desires to be done. Even if He defers it to the day of judgment, you just let it go and you let Christ deal with it. What He is glorified in is how you will respond. How you respond.
Let's pray. God in heaven, we sense how far short we fall of the very glory and the character of Christ who opened not his mouth when lies and reviling accusations were brought against him. How he defeated his enemy in this very way. Lord, this is, to our natural minds, nonsensical. But Lord, you have declared it to be so, and so we ask that you would train our minds, to train our spirits, and to shape our hearts into this very thing that we would respond in the spirit and not react in the flesh. Lord, we have great need for you to watch over us and give us the victory here, for we cannot do it in our flesh. Strengthen our faith that we could see the glory of Christ and defer to him. We might live this day in the light of eternity, that we might allow you to do your work in the way that would please and glorify you. May we be faithful with the word and simply leave the results to you. We trust your wisdom, but give us a deeper faith in it, that our lives might conform to this truth this week. And Lord, we ask that you would test us this week in this. Oh, that's a hard thing to pray. But Lord, we know that our faith will not grow unless we're tested. We will not overcome unless we are put into the crucible of experience that we might look to you and see that indeed you are good. And the satisfaction of our own soul will be met with Christ and his graces. So as you test us in these things, may you give us the grace to overcome and see that these things are so. And so we do ask for grace. Go before us and do not test us beyond that which we are capable. Remember that we are but dust and we do ask for little testings and little victories that we might see all the more assuredly that this is the way of Christ and the way of truth. And so sanctify us in these things we pray. Not for our glory, but for yours and for your great name's sake. And we pray this in Jesus. Amen.